Welcome to Conversations in Commercial Banking, a podcast series dedicated to the pressing financial topics facing middle market business leaders today. We bring in experts from all facets of our North American institution to provide actionable insights that help you navigate today's environment. Our discussions include industry trends, strategies to identify and manage risk, and unlocking opportunities for growth, all with the purpose of helping you realize your ambitions. And now for this week's episode. Hello, this is Ron Miller, and I'm pleased to be your host today. I lead the investment banking team at CIBC Cleary Gall, which serves our middle market M&A clients across the United States. This episode will help you to find your answer to the inevitable question, what next for my business? The answer to this question is unique for every business owner, whether you're planning far in advance or if the sale is just around the corner. Whether it's a decision to retire and pass the business to your children or stay on, we'll talk through the key considerations that every business owner should ponder before coming to that decision. Joining me today are two of my fellow investment bankers, John Peterson, Managing Director, and Patrick Ringsred, Executive Director. Both John and Patrick have decades of experience helping owners of middle market companies navigate sale transactions. John and Patrick, Welcome and thank you for joining me today. Uh, It's a pleasure to have an opportunity to speak to uh, business owners on this subject. If enough of them will uh, pay attention, we do a good enough job, it'll help us uh, represent them in the future. Thanks, John. Today, we're gonna cover four topics, preparing your business for sale, picking your advisor, types of buyers, and the market is now a good time to sell. I'd like this to be an interactive conversation, so I look forward to the to the discussion. Um, the first topic is uh, preparing for a sale. Uh, John, you have a lot of experience uh, advising clients and preparing businesses for sale. Um, let's cover a couple topics here. You know, financial reporting. Uh, what what? You know, is an audit necessary, and what kind of reporting would uh, would you like to see in a business? So, in general, our answer regarding an audit would be no, not necessary. And later on, I think we'll talk about some nice to haves for selling a business, and I think an audit probably goes on that list. The first area that comes to mind, recording regarding financial reporting, that would be uh, important for business owners to, owners to consider preparing for sale would be uh, business uh, analytics, uh, sometimes referred to as uh, you know KPIs. And specifically, one of the big differences we see between entrepreneur-owned companies versus professional institutionally-owned companies is their ability to break down their uh, success by outputs, inputs, relationships, you know, whatever matters to a particular specific company. And by breakdown, we mean revenue, profitability, certainly to the gross margin level, possibly contribution margin, or even EBITDA margin. And whether it's uh, a sales breakdown, outputs by products or services, uh, inputs such as capital labor activity, or relationships like suppliers, you know, distribution channel, the ability to articulate why and how a company makes money, what its history has been, trends and opportunities is probably the single biggest place where we see um, uh, companies having a gap running into a sale process. 
Great, I think that's helpful. Yeah, the audit alone or the summary numbers just don't really tell the story of how a business is operating in its markets and with it with regard to specific customers. Well, they don't. And in terms of implementing a comprehensive understanding of this breakdown, most of our entrepreneurial clients have a financial reporting staff, a CFO, a controller, accountant, whatever, who's sized and prepared to report on business results, not necessarily undertake a, a comprehensive analytics project. This is important enough. If I were thinking about selling my business in a few years, I would seriously consider bringing in a temp CFO consultant or someone with you know expertise in the industry to help to create that program. A lot of private companies, you know, run a lot through their income statement and they're not necessarily run to maximize profits. What about, you know, what we call addbacks and adjustments? This topic comes up in every sale process and um, uh, the effort is to indicate ongoing profitability under uh, independent ownership. The two categories of addbacks and adjustments we're typically identifying are non-recurring items and owner-related items. Both of them can be either positive or negative. We have owners who overpay themselves relative to market, underpay relative to market, you know, for a variety of reasons. The next owner wants to look at ongoing profitability. It's really important to identify all of these uh, addbacks and adjustments, and ideally they would be eliminated uh, within you know, years prior to the sale so that the business can be shown how it runs, you know, clean and independently uh, without having to make addbacks and adjustments. John, talk a little bit about uh, tax and estate planning. I know that uh, tax structure and transfer of stock can have material impacts on uh, net proceeds. The tax structure for a transaction typically is more of a real-time when the transaction is executed decision. There are a variety of uh, provisions in the tax laws that, you know, frankly, make it difficult uh, to reconfigure a business to get a better income tax result on a sale. Uh, you know, shortly beforehand. The one uh, notable exception I might mention would be a spinoff split out, you know, uh, some kind of a carve out. Sometimes we see businesses that have unrelated um, profit streams that would be logically sold to separate buyers. It's usually very tax inefficient to do that shortly before sale. That's something you would look at in terms of long range planning. But the bigger long range planning for taxes probably has more to do on the estate planning uh, side. And there are some fairly exotic and aggressive techniques that can be used with enough time in advance of a sale, really depending on the owner's uh, need for assets, the family relationship, you know, the intentions regarding where assets would, would uh, logically end up. And this is actually an area where the CIBC uh, private wealth management team uh, has some experience, not that they're experts per se in estate planning, but a lot of experience uh, guiding people and creating relationships that will help them look at those opportunities uh, beforehand. It sounds like that estate planning cannot, you can't be too early on estate planning where tax laws change you know, over time. And as you said, that's a little more real time. In general, estate planning, estate tax laws are trending to be less favorable to uh, wealthy people at the current time. So that would certainly be the case. What about uh, legal work before a transaction? Any legal due diligence you think owners should do before they contemplate a transaction? The phrase legal due diligence is uh, very well chosen to describe you know, the type of opportunity to get ahead of things that could become problematic if they're discovered uh, real time, you know, while a transaction is being executed. These are issues like uh, third party consents and approvals. 
regulatory approvals, customer contracts, a credit facilities, sometimes landlord approvals. Maybe they can be addressed, maybe they can be obtained, maybe they can be eliminated far in advance as opposed to trying to uh, get that negotiation underway at the same time you're in the process of uh, selling the company. Another area that can be profitably looked at is uh, called contingent liabilities. And these are things like um, uh, you know, intellectual property documentation, uh, environmental analysis, uh, employee matters such as confidentiality agreements, um, uh, benefit plans, if there are any sale-related compensation items for employees to be put into effect. One place where we see many companies uh, fall down, and this is not just the entrepreneur-owned companies, is uh, sales tax uh, exposure. Uh, lately, we've seen that uh, come up you know, a number of times. People are seem surprised, and buyers always catch it. Another area where we're seeing a lot of activity has to do with I'll call it the origin of a tax structure, where all the I's dotted and the T's crossed when the LLC was formed or the S corporation was put together. A number of those full pause, if they exist, can be corrected with lead time, but very difficult to address if they're discovered in the middle of a transaction. Yeah, that just those issues have come up so frequently lately. How about um, you know management? Are most of the companies prepared on succession and operating management going forward? So this sort of brings us back to the list I mentioned earlier in terms of uh, you know nice to haves. Um, ideally, um, the, you know, the buyer, almost all buyers, want to have uh, management in place, subject matter experts on the company, and uh, you know continuity to preserve you know relationships and momentum before and after the sale. We rarely, like literally, almost never. Uh, come across uh, a buyer of any type. I think Patrick will talk about types of buyers soon that have excess, you know, management. People looking for jobs that can plug in. Almost always, the company is more valuable, more attractive if there is, um, you know, management uh, in place. Uh, you know, having said that, for the entrepreneurial company in particular, uh, there's a limit to what can be done. Um, so, in a perfect world, we'd have that uh, ongoing continuous management. If that's not present when the company is sold, that has to be acknowledged, and that means you know looking for a buyer that's willing to take on that challenge and understand those risks uh, as part of the transaction. Uh, also, on the nice to have uh, category, and I think we're going to move on to another subject here in a minute. I mentioned the audit. Um, that's not necessary uh, usually to get a company sold. Um, there is a high correlation between companies that have audits and companies that have good business analytics, but they're really separate uh, subjects. There are other things like market studies. Uh, strategic plans, you know, acquisition pipelines, all of which can add value uh, to a business, but maybe those are details we should be discussing with specific business owners in the context of their company, uh, as opposed to uh, generically. John, that's a great background and a nice uh, segue to my next topic, which is picking a financial advisor. So, uh, Patrick, um, you've been involved in a number of, in, you know, pitches and deals over the years. What advice would you give business owners for when to start thinking about picking an advisor? Yeah, so when picking an advisor, one should think about the fact that a sale process, when done well, you know, could take six to nine months. And so as you're contemplating when you'd like the sale transaction to be completed, you should accommodate for that process timing in your decision um, when you're beginning your decision, certainly 
you know, there's no real negative consequence to beginning to talk to investment bankers even further out than that. And that allows for them to develop a relationship with you and get a big, better understanding of the business over a period of time. How, how do you find an investment banker? Yeah, so oftentimes some great resources are your corporate attorney or accountant who may have had experiences with investment bankers. It's also you know, worthwhile talking to other business executives in your network and even going out on the internet and looking for investment banks that may have a particular expertise that's relevant to your business. Talk, talk about the process of pitching. I mean, you don't just call a banker and they tell you what it's worth. It must take a lot of time and energy and information in order for that banker to create you know, a quality pitch and advice. Yeah, so often what happens is a business owner will invite several investment banks to put a pitch together. That pitch can take many forms, but often includes information on the relevant credentials for the investment bank, the deal team, valuation, buyers, process, and fees. As one might imagine, uh, there is some information flow that's required of the company and owner to inform that pitch, uh, but that information is very valuable for the owner to understand what they should believe that that investment can deliver for them and the you know the buyer audience the outcome the timing etc and having more than one investment bank compete allows them to you know have some comparison and some options in their selection process yeah, i actually kind of find it frustrating sometimes when a client potential client calls and says in a week can you pitch this is a huge lifelong decision and engaging an investment bank six months ahead of time or several months ahead of time to build that relationship, get that information, I think ends up with higher quality advice in, in, in selection of your partners. I've heard a lot, a lot of companies come to us and say, should I get a valuation done first? Uh, what, you know, what's your opinion of having a valuation firm, you know, uh, do that work before you try to pick an investment banker? Yeah, so, you know, obviously we're, as investment makers, we're not um, estate planning experts, but the valuation you're referring to would be very useful for estate planning means the valuation that you would receive from an investment banker may arrive at the same answer, but goes about it a different way and has a different intent. Ultimately, that's to give the owner some perspective on the valuation they would receive from either you know, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but the buyer audience, the private equity firms or strategic buyers. So does an owner need an investment bank? Uh, you know, why pick an investment bank if you've got a logical acquirer that maybe you've been in conversation with? Yeah, so the way to think about this is business owner is very good at the business they're running um, and and sort of acknowledging that they may not be a good part-time investment banker or, or sort of uh, amateur investment banker. And it's just sort of akin to saying you wouldn't sell your house on your own, you'd use a real estate agent. In this regard, it's worthwhile to have an advisor, both for the value from the process that's run, but also their knowledge and experience within the buyer universe, the industry, Etc. There's multiple facets to the value provided by an investment banker in running the process and ultimately achieving um, a sale outcome. Okay, that's I, 
I, I agree with that. I, I think it's it's pretty complicated and the leverage that a banker can bring to you know, provide the right information and create competition is, is a really different skill than, you know, making widgets or providing a service. So that that's a, a good transition to, you know, a lot of owners come in and say they want a financial buyer or they don't want a financial buyer or a specific strategic buyer. How do you think of buyers and buyer categories um, just broadly? Yeah, I think one of the important values we provide as investmakers educating the owner on the buyer types, their objectives, what they're trying to do. Um, and then also in the context of, you know, we market companies all the time. And so we have relationships with those buyer groups. And so when we outreach to them, we can create connectivity and get them involved in a process. Certainly informing a client on the buyer types may help them make a more informed decision ultimately on the buyer type they would like to sell to. Uh, it may also go more specific than that and get into what characteristics they're looking for in a buyer. And we have a lot of faith in a sale process, ultimately giving the owner options and the ability to pick the buyer that achieves their ultimate sale objective better. So do financial financial buyers often get a bad rap. I mean, do they want to quadruple the company and manage the business or do they tend to leave the business alone and just run it for cash flow? Yeah, it's a good question. So the financial buyers are ultimately raising money from endowments, pension funds, et cetera, to deliver a return. Um, and they're targeting return, um, you know, over a five-year hold period. Um, there is a wide dispersion within the financial buyer universe and they can be very passive, very active, certainly relying on your investment banker to help you understand which groups are which and how they interact is really important. But also to the business owner, in a sale process, you'll have opportunities to interact with them and assess them yourself. Um, having that opportunity to garner understanding of, again, who fits the best for your company is really important. Talk a little bit about strategic buyers. I mean, do they take apart the company and consolidate the business into another branch or do they try to grow that business? What's your experience with how strategic buyers behave? Yeah, so for for well-run good companies, which are the companies that we represent, often what we find is that strategic buyers are looking to invest in and grow that business. And that's generally the fastest way to create return for their shareholders. There's sort of a well-worn or well-known path of you know, messing with companies, messing with management. That's typically one of the fastest ways to lose money in deals. Uh, but it, again, it's also a benefit of running a sale process so that you're able to ascertain and inquire uh, both with your investment maker and potentially yourself to determine who fulfills the objectives that you have for the sale process and making sure that the company ends up in the right hands in a go forward basis. So which do you prefer? Uh, from a buyer category? Yeah. Do you favor financial buyers or strategic buyers? I, I think as an investment maker, we should understand what the client objectives are and ultimately the goal is client satisfaction. So the buyer sort of the best way to think of it as being indifferent um, from an investment banker perspective and very client focused on ultimately who the right partner is yeah, going I, to. I was kind of teasing you because <laughs> I think the market really speaks and buyers behave really differently depending on the asset and the company. 
and the market kind of tells you what the right buyer is and right value and and you know how different buyers uh, do it they're each so unique and yeah. i think some of these generalizations get are a bit unfair yeah we we have a lot of confidence in our process ultimately fleshing out the preferred partner is ultimately the winner oftentimes in value and terms these other qualities and there's just a natural matching experience that occurs in the sale process when it's done correctly. So ESOPs are getting a lot of press lately. It seems like there's a little bit of a growing trend towards uh, ESOPs. What's your opinion of ESOPs as buyers? Yeah, so certainly there's a nice dynamic with ESOPs. What we find though is that there's a limited, in, in, in the right circumstances, they can be the best outcome. Those circumstances are a bit narrow but for that situation they're a great great solution for a business owner and you know obviously the, the employee ownership element is very attractive for the employees john you've had some particular esop experience over your career anything to add to well in a way it's uh pat referred to under you know, the right circumstances can be a great outcome for the company for the employees you know and the owners tax advantages but there's a financing uh, component and the capital, the financing structures available to an ESOP uh, purchase are just much more limited than uh, other buyers. Um, and uh, private equity buyers, strategic buyers typically have a lot more tools in the toolbox um, in terms of how to, um, uh, how to get a deal done that frankly may create a value disparity in some situations. But speaking of tools, I think we think of ESOPs as a means it's not an objective. Think about what are the owner's objectives, and there are situations where the ESOP is the best way to achieve them, and other situations, you know, where it isn't. So perhaps, you know, agnostic, but I would echo Patrick's comment that in our experience, it's a relatively narrow set of circumstances where it usually is the best. I want to turn to our last topic, which is the market, and is now a good time to sell. We've covered a lot of ground on preparing for a sale, on picking advisors, and you know, and buyer types. But John, is it a good market right now to sell? Well, without trying to be too much of a smart aleck, the question is, you know, which which market? And, uh, you know, the definition of the market is, um, you know, I think very malleable and suits the circumstances. And some market parameters are, you know, practically irrelevant. You know, some are very, very important. And let me start with something that's very top of mind for everybody because, it's covered by multiple media, and that's the stock market. The correlation between uh, stock market and you know whether it's a good time to sell a company is a positive correlation, but it's a very low uh, correlation. Uh, the stock market has a lot of dynamics uh, impacting it that are sort of irrelevant to uh, what would happen uh, you know when a when a company is sold. So I'd say that's not your indicator to look at. You look at the economy. You know, in a strong economy, most businesses will be sold more. Uh, have more buyers, more interest, you know, at higher prices than an economy that's you know not as strong. But again, weak, uh, you know, correlation as it relates to the uh, prospects for selling any a particular company. And then you get to you know M and A market. There's data published. You start to get you know into the mergers and acquisitions world. The total volume of uh, transactions reported globally or in the United States, the total you know number of deals, and these are gargantuan, uh, you know, numbers. Uh, you know, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars and thousands and thousands of uh, transactions, which are, you know, interesting as it relates to any particular company. But again, you know, not really determinative 
So I think currently the stock market is uh, volatile. Uh, the signals on the economy are mixed. Uh, the M&E uh, uh, data is very, very strong. Transaction volumes you know, down year to date, but uh, valuation multiples appearing to hold up quite well. Although honestly, that may be more a factor of the, the phenomenon that really good companies uh, always seem to be able to find a yeah. buyer. Um, yeah, John, you didn't mention higher interest rate. Interest rates have gone up. It, you didn't mention that as one of the factors in middle market M and A. Uh, excellent point. And um, of all of the you know macro market factors that probably have an impact, uh, finance, not just interest rates but also uh, availability. And uh, as merger and acquisition professionals, we pay a lot of attention to the um, cash flow multiples that banks and other lenders, mezzanine players. Uh, um, direct lending funds willing to lend, uh, as well as the interest rates. Honestly, it's probably credit availability more than interest rates at the margin that impacts um, the attractiveness of the M&A market. Uh, credit availability right now is below the peak of a, you know, maybe a year or two ago, but still quite high relative to normal terms. So again, supportive of the market. But the things that really matter, and when I was thinking about timing of when to sell a business, the things that really matter are what's going on in the industry and what's going on in the company. And being able to pay attention and know, you know, know, know what those trends are, demand, competition, consolidation uh, within the industry, within the company, a number of the factors that we've talked about uh, now, I think really are what people should focus on uh, in terms of, from a timing standpoint, we've seen many times where people are waiting for all the planets to line up, stock market, economy, M&A market, industry, you know, company dynamics, and it doesn't doesn't always work that that way. It'd be great if you could, but uh, better probably to focus on the bottom up company industry, you know, M&A yeah, markets I mean, and so on. I, I think that's a really profound point. When you're in billion dollar deals, a lot of time the credit availability and some of the macro trends are more important in a middle market company. I mean, the trends for M&A, there's more money chasing, you know, a stable or lower amount of deals. The M&A market's going to be good for a long time, even while there's noise around all the factors that you identified. But what's happening with a specific company in their market, in their strategy and position, just is more important than the last quarter turn or half turn of debt availability or the last 100 basis points of interest rate, you know, of interest rates. Well said, and well said. And you know, setting aside my comment about you know which market, whichever market it is, it's a market supply and demand. You know, defined. And for now, and you know, frankly, for the foreseeable future, the demand side for acquisitions is very high. When you think of that in terms of the amount of capital that's been raised by private equity for the purpose of buying companies, and the amount of cash on corporate balance sheets that need to grow through inorganic strategies, it's um, it's it's a pretty good time right now. Okay, so we covered a lot of topics here on preparing for sale, on buyers, and on you know the markets. Um, this takes quite a bit of time. How can CIBC help entrepreneurs, you know, navigate um, this process, which clearly takes years, not months? We are, as part of CIBC, our middle market investment banking group is very happy to have the opportunity to look at businesses. Patrick described you know, what a normal investment banking pitch looks like. A lot of that analysis and perspective you know, can be provided before uh, it's time to start interviewing investment bankers and doing a pitch. And we are more than happy to roll up our sleeves and talk to a business owner 
Uh, usually, you know, confidentiality agreement is signed if it doesn't already exist with CIBC. You know, exchange some information, you know, offer some perspective and offer some uh, observations and, you know, start that dialogue early. Great. So I think I've heard four things from this conversation, if I were to sum it up, that um, it's really important to plan ahead and have the right team, and that takes some time. That preparation for a sale, whether it be developing KPIs, having an audit, a market study, legal uh, or accounting due diligence also can have an important impact. Um, that understanding the buyers and the process are really important. And lastly, that CIBC really has a breadth of services that can help uh, any entrepreneur navigate all of these dynamics, find the right partner, and uh, and help entrepreneurs, you know, materialize or realize their kind of financial ambitions. John and Patrick, thank you. As always, this has been a very enlightening hearing your insights into key market considerations about when and if you should sell your business. No matter what the circumstances, selling a company you've put so much into can be daunting and sometimes emotionally draining. You've provided some valuable insights and perspectives to ensure that that transaction is smooth. Thank you all for joining us on our podcast with a focus on selling your business. If you have any additional questions, please reach out to your relationship manager at CIBC. A well-executed transaction is made possible through collaboration with your banker and other business advisors by communicating early on, asking questions, and sharing your ambitions for the future. In the meantime, check us out at us.cibc.com or across several social media platforms by searching at CIBC underscore US. Thanks for listening. We look forward to catching up again soon. CIBC is a member FDIC and equal housing lender. Loans are subject to credit approval. To the extent that information contained herein is derived from third-party sources, although we believe the sources to be reliable, we cannot guarantee their accuracy. The CIBC logo is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Investment products offered are not FDIC insured, may lose value, and are not bank guaranteed.